and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. This show is being recorded in late October of 2023. Currently, the global carbon dioxide levels are 419.09 parts per million. That's 419 parts per million, way, way above the 350 parts per million that scientists tell us we need to be at. On top of that, there's only 2,261 days left until the year 2030, by which time we need to cut our carbon dioxide emissions substantially. So the jobs ahead of us, time is short. Well, I think everyone has seen uh, the pictures from the 1960s of the Earth rising above the moon, right? The moon rise, the Earth rise photos are iconic, classic things. And of course, that gives you the impression that we know a lot about the structure of the Earth because you can see it all right there in a the picture, right? Uh, and all of us have been taught since childhood that Mount Everest is the highest place on Earth, and they can measure that to something like a meter, right? They're very accurate measurements of the height of Mount Everest. But it turns out that, perhaps counterintuitively, there's no place yet where the whole entire surface of the Earth has been mapped with precision. And what I mean by precision, I think, is on the order of, you know, five feet, plus or minus five feet in an accuracy of what you're measuring. Um, that doesn't exist today. If you had such a thing where you like really knew precisely where everything on the surface of the Earth was, that would be a very powerful, a very powerful set of knowledge, right? That you have all you know exactly where the what is it the big uh, the big uh, Ferris wheel in London is, and you know exactly how tall something uh, the Taj Mahal is in India. Right? You've got all this information. That much information would help us address climate change for a lot of reasons that uh, that uh, we can talk about. So because of this, this glimmering concept of this wonderful idea that you can map the entire surface of the Earth to high precision, right, it turns out that someone has actually gone about trying to do that. And we are fortunate to have with us today the guy who's taken up the task of mapping the entire globe to high precision. His name is Clint Grauman, and he is the uh, CEO and a co-founder of a company called New View, which is all, it's N-U-V-I-E, W, all capital, New View, all capital. And uh, he's with us today to talk about this issue and explain why it matters. So, Clint, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Hey, let there be light. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come and and to talk about what New View is doing uh, with our LIDAR constellation. So I just told a little story about uh, uh, about what I think you're trying to do. Tell me, what is the goal of your – so again, dear listener, New View is a startup company that is recently gotten funding to go ahead and execute this project of mapping the whole world. Did I get that story right? Is that what you're trying to do? I mean, in, in simplified terms, what are you trying to get at? 
Absolutely. You got the story more right than, than any podcast or interview that I've sat for so far. Um, so thank you for, for doing that. Yeah, we're, um, you know, we, we recognize that precision is so important when it comes to environmental studies. It's so important when it comes to cartography and mapping. It's so important for understanding the data that we need to make crucial environmental and climate science decisions. And um, the part of your story that was leading up to how what we're doing is, I think the the real crux of it is is how we're doing it. And imagine imaging the entire planet with light, and we're using light in the form of a lidar um, to be able to to get extreme precision on the elevation and and where things actually sit on the Earth. And so, um, you know, we we look forward to the opportunity to to spread that um, spread that word about how we can build a planet, a model of the planet where climate scientists, academics, environmentalists can make decisions with real data and stop guessing and start accounting. So, so tell me, you, you use a couple of words, extreme precision, and I I said I put a number on. It. I said, you know, a few feet. What is the and I think most listeners probably don't quite follow that, but I mean, we, we talk about measuring height with precision. It's not to, I don't think it's to a kilometer, right? You're not measuring to like uncertainty of a kilometer. You're talking about uncertainty in terms of meters. Is that fair? Um, it, it, it's even better than that. In my, in my wildest dreams, we'll be in the ballpark of centimeters versus really? meters. Really? Yeah. So, really? One of the really amazing things about measuring with light um, and LIDAR is that if you if you think about the type of satellite imagery that you, you image with from an optical system, um, they're accurate to meters. And if you think about radar, um, it's the, you know, that- Forgive me, forgive me, Clint, just let me jump in. in. You just, just to catch yeah. that, we say accurate to meters means that at the end of the day, you come back and you say the top of the Empire State Building is- you know, whatever Wrong. it is, through 400 meters plus or minus 10 meters. You can't measure closer than 10 meters. And you're saying you could be measuring the top of the Empire State Building to within a few centimeters, which is on the scale of inches, right? Just to say when Correct. you say exactly. that accuracy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, if you if you think about the uh, the world that's changing that we live in and understanding, for example, where a flood is going to go. If you if you try to think about is this going to go to the height of me? Is it going to go to the height of a, a building or the height of my ankles? That matters. And if you're trying to prepare for natural disasters, you're trying to prepare for coastal erosion and climate change, or understand how much carbon is in a forest. Being able to measure is so much better than being able to estimate. And what we're doing gives us the ability to begin to measure. Um, and make real assessments based on real data um, and make informed decisions with real data. And if we can be to the accuracy of, of, of centimeters, um, that's a that's a total changer oh my, oh my in, God, yeah. in how we approach the problem. Absolutely. All right, so here's another question. You've said LIDAR a couple of times. So that's LIDAR is some sort of an acronym for something, right? And so my question to you is, explain LIDAR like I'm uh, a five-year-old. Tell me, what, what, what do you mean sure. when you say LIDAR? Yeah, so so LIDAR um, stands for light detection and ranging. And what you're, what you're essentially doing is, is you've got an instrument that emits a signal in the form of light. 
um, and it receives that back and it measures at the speed of light, the distance between that emitter, what the light struck and comes back um, with extreme precision. precision. And so the ranging piece is understanding the range or the distance between two objects. And so light detection and ranging or LIDAR measures that that distance between things in extreme precision. So if you were to put a LIDAR in a spacecraft, um, hundreds of kilometers or hundreds of miles above the earth, um, light has a great way of, of keeping its precision over long distances. And so you measure the distance between a fixed and known position um, to a high degree of accuracy of that spacecraft in orbit above the Earth and its relative position um, to a spot on the Earth that it sent the light out to to get it back. And so a LIDAR, just like what you see um, or that you hear about or read about on self-driving cars, many of them have a LIDAR on the car to measure the distance in really rapid time between the car and an object that may be in front of it. So our spacecraft is doing the same thing sending out billions of laser points. They all hit the earth and they come back so frequently and so many of them that you can create a 3D rendering, a real 3D rendering of what the earth is shaped like, what's sitting on the earth um, and understand the shape of an object. These things all help us make very informed decisions. Interesting. And so you just said the magic word because I was going to inquire about the light. We're not talking about a flashlight, right? We're talking about a probably a laser, which is very... Uh, uh, um, as you say, very focused, very uh, pure and precise kind of. And I, I would just say, I mean, LIDAR, m- many people are familiar with radar, right? Where you, so you have a radio Correct. wave that goes out and bounces and comes back and you can tell what's going on. Sonar is with the cel- submarine pings things and listens back. You're doing something similar with light here. And that's exactly uh, fantastic. Yeah, okay. so... So radar sends out um, waves on the electric electromagnetic spectrum and, and receives um, signal back. And before it was called LIDAR, many people referred to it as LADAR, which stands for laser radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it works in much the same way. Interesting. So, okay. So you, the your uh, quickly, you can explain more, but the, the idea is to put up a whole a bunch of satellites into space that are going to be rotating around the Earth, essentially doing this LIDAR process and sending that information down into a big computer somewhere, somebody's laptop <laughs> that is holding yep. all this stuff. And then uh, you've got you make it available uh, for various purposes, right? Is that exactly. that your concept? You know, it- Yep. Um, and to elaborate on that a little bit more and, and why this mission is so big, um, you know, the, the Earth is huge. It's a it's 150 million square kilometers. And, I, and I'm sorry, I lost the ability to think in miles a long time ago working in the <laughs> geospatial world. But it's 150 million square kilometers, so about a, a 100 million square miles, um, roughly. Um, and so with that, there's a lot of land out there. And today, only about 5% of the planet has ever been mapped with the level of precision that you can get with LIDAR. Um, and so our goal, we're putting up 20 of these satellites. They will all work um, together um, as if they were one instrument. And so you take and you match all of that data, all of those returns that you get back on the measurements, and you patch it together like a quilt into a giant um, rendering of the Earth's surface in 3D in extremely high precision. And so if you think about the scale of that, only 5% has ever been done. We're attempting to do that with 20 satellites um, once per year. And so we're going to create not only a snapshot of the Earth, 
But the goal is to create an annual layer over and over again so that scientists can not only have a single data set, but they can also start to look at layers of data in a time series to understand how things are changing and moving. And if you think about um, areas along the coastline, if we can understand coastal erosion and have real data behind it on an annual basis, imagine what we could do with that and take that to forestry and take that to transportation and take that to urban development and all of these other areas. How much more could we do if we had real data to work with? Fascinating. So, so tell me, this, this is great, great technology, very interesting technology. For the average person who's not, you know, up to speed on, say, climate modeling or resiliency work, but is, a, is concerned about climate change, right, wants to address climate change. Tell me, how does this, this body of information that you're proposing to collect, right, once we have that, how does that, how does that affect the average climate activist? What could, the, what could they see, do you think, that would – and I just, I mean, I think you gave a great example a minute ago, but it was like, if there's going to be a flood on the coast of Boston, you can kind of make a guess as to whether it's going to be up to your knees or up to your nose, right? Is that, right. Uh, so tell me more, tell me more about why the, the a climate activist should care about what you're doing. So um, there, there are ways that we address climate change. Some of them are addressing the symptoms and some of those are addressing the root cause. And one of the things that, that I believe we can do is put data behind understanding um, the world's forests. And one of the major problems that we have at a global scale is uh, both legal and illegal um, cutting and clearing of forested areas. And we all know the impact that um, the vegetation has on our environment. And so, so one of the ways that we measure that is, is carbon accounting. Um, and today we may call it carbon accounting, but what we're really doing is we're just guessing, we're estimating. And with, with an optical satellite, so like the type of imagery that you see on Google Earth, you log in, you look at Google Earth and you see a picture, right? Optical meaning that what is, you see with your eyes. Exactly. Just a, it's, I mean, it's a very naive thing. I, I look out the airplane window, I see an optical image of the ground. You're, th you're producing exactly. something somewhat different, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great explanation. And when you look at that, um, although that data is that that satellite image is very high resolution, most of what you're doing is you're guessing by looking at the entire canopy as an entire unit. Um, and it's hard to measure. But with LIDAR, one of the things you can do is you can penetrate the canopy of trees because the laser points are so small that they'll go between the leaves, between the branches, and it hits the ground. And so now you can see the top of the tree. You can see the grounds, you can see the breadth of the tree. So you've got length, width, and height of the tree. Now you can account for how much carbon or how much biomass is there. Whereas if you're looking with two-dimensional imagery, you only see the top and you're guessing at what the surface is doing below. And so moving, moving from estimation to accounting is, is a major factor in what we're, we're hoping to achieve with climate change and environmental um, practices and policy. Wow, that's very interesting. And, and just that explanation clears up a lot of stuff. And I've, I've got another sort of metaphorical, poetic description. But essentially, you're taking what amounts to a laser pointer up into space and aiming it down to the ground. And that laser pointer is so fine, it can find its way between the leaves and find the ground, 
you know, without getting blocked. And then you can sort of image at depth, which is really. Yeah. I I don't get to hike like I used to, but I love to go out into the woods and on trails and, and hike. And the way that you can think about this is if you're walking in the woods and you can look up and there's light hitting the ground, you can see it's not pitch black. If there's light hitting the ground from the sun, those LIDAR um, beams can make it through the canopy and collect an image on the ground. It's not going to be as fine as it is on open terrain, but you can do it. And, Interesting. you know, if you think about how we repeat that over and over, every time we pass, every time we come over, more light hits the ground. There's more penetration and we get a better look at what's mm-hmm. beneath. And so the world has been mapped in what's called elevation or, or let's call it height. Um, all around the world, but it's basically done on the surface. And the terrain is what we see below the vegetation. It's what's the the actual surface or the actual um, uh, part of the earth that we want to know and understand. And so the surface models have been done at wide scale for quite a long while, but the terrain models, being able to hit what's beneath and make real decisions based on that, um, that's that's the grail. That's an interesting... So... so this then veers into an interesting side topic. Our, our, I mean, what you're talking about is carbon, what did you call it? Carbon accounting, which in other phrases is carbon offsets by people buying the forest to store carbon. And there's, as you, I'm sure you're aware, there's lots of controversy about whether or not that is legit. But I think that you're, what you're offering is a way to actually measure the how much carbon is stored in the forest because you can see everything. My question is this, if the work that you're doing would then be handed off, you would essentially have this um, data set that's kind of agnostic and saying, all right, here's all the, where all the trees we measured. You give it to the forestry scientists and they figure out how much carbon is there, right? What you're, you're saying, you don't, you're not making the calculation of how much carbon is there, but you have the data you think would support that somebody somebody different doing that calculation, right? Yeah, we're, we're a company that's built on partnerships. And um, I fundamentally believe that it would be impossible for me to know agriculture as well as the agronomist. agronomist. And it's impossible for me to know forests as well as the forester um, or urban planning as well as the engineer. Mm-hmm. But if we can create a data set that's easy to work with um, and large in scale, that they can train, that they can use, that they can learn from to back up um, all of the decisions they're making, that's a, that's a total game changer in what we can do. And, and I like to say that, that we're not changing the world, but we're enabling other people to change it in their own way. Interesting. Interesting. So, so that then leads to the question of, of, um, so the cynical part of me says, yeah, you're Elon, you're the new Elon Musk, right? You're putting up satellites. You have this huge <laughs> thing, Right the customers are probably going to be fairly sophisticated people, right? And I can immediately imagine, I'm sure uh, ExxonMobil would like to see your map of the Arctic, right? And governments would like to, see, I mean, how do you, who do you think the first market is? Who do you think would be trying to use the information? Again, you don't have to tell me because you're a startup, right? You, I'm sure you're talking to customers, but how do you see that playing out? And, and then rewinding, it's like, how does the person who lives on the, oh, I think it's called the Everett Creek in, 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 in Boston that is subject to, is at high risk of flooding as we go forward. How do they take advantage of what you're doing? Yeah. So I like to think of, of 
you know, the people and the groups that work with our data as, as um, a fundamental two groups of people. Um, one of those are the users and the other are the beneficiaries. And I think the gentleman or the person that you just described that lives on the bank near a body of water, they're the beneficiaries. In many cases, hopefully that beneficiary doesn't even have to do anything or know that we exist to benefit from the work that's being done. And the users are the environmentalists, the planners, the, the people who work to make sure that we all stay safe um, within government or NGOs. And so I would hope that we see the large scale adoption of our data to understand in those areas that are pr pr prone to flooding, the types of work that needs to be done to sustain the environment in that area to be able to move water in the direction away from people. You know, I was, I was meeting with someone from um, um, uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, a part of USDA, and, and I asked them a few years ago, what keeps you up at night? And what kept that person up at night was the person, the farmer, the agriculturalist that built a residence downstream from a flood prone area that hasn't occurred in a decade or decades, and they don't know the danger that's there. And you have everything from a river that's changed paths. You have everything from, um, you know, a stream that's been dammed up because something has caved in or changed. All of these types of things are what kept that person up at night. And if we can provide the data that helps them understand how we can stop erosion in an agricultural area, how we can prevent flooding in areas where people live, it's not just about the commercial use of which there are many. It's also about what we can do as a society to, to better govern ourselves um, and live on a planet in harmony. And um, now we'll go back and I'll answer your question directly. Um, you ask who are the first customers? And when we um, designed our system, we went out and we were fortunate enough to have um, two really um, great government stakeholders who who I can't say their their name um, on the air here, but they they reviewed our our engineering in what's called a preliminary design review. Um, and once we got that out there, a hundred percent of all the customers we had talked to in advance all signed agreements with us, um, either in the form of letters of intent or early adopter agreements, which is essentially working with us to secure their spot once the data is available in the satellites. Um, and again, we signed 100% after that event, and that amounted to $1.2 billion worth of agreements that are pre-worked um, pre and pre-discussed and everything before we even have launched our satellites. And so what that signaled to me was that there is this huge demand for what we're doing. But the point of your question was to get to who these people are. And when we went out to, to make sure we could make a case and that we weren't fooling ourselves about the demand for what we're doing... Um, we never went to two customers in the same vertical market or two sets of users. And so we've got customers um, from environmental, um, from energy. So, you know, once I, I think you mentioned um, wind energy and mm -hmm. solar energy and learning where to position these things from telecoms and knowing where to put towers for 5G networks, for agriculture, for forestry. We made sure that we were diverse in where we went to, and that makes up all of those adopters. Um, so I don't think it's one fair answer to say one single customer is the first customer because they've all really stepped up and understood the value of the data that we'll be providing. Fantastic. So tell me, uh, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the status? Where are you on the pr process? And again, what we're talking about is a system 
of satellites you're proposing that, as you said, variants of 20 satellites that all act as one detector, right, circling the Earth. Mm -hmm. What's the what's your program? When would people when do you expect to see data flowing? Um, um, what's the timeline? Yeah, um, so a couple of the timelines, you know, we we kind of keep those close to us um, oh, okay. because one, one reason is it's a competitive advantage. The other one is that we work in the space business. If you, you've heard Elon Musk say this, like space is hard, right? And everything slides to the right. And so um, we don't want to set the wrong expectations that, that everything runs perfectly, but mm -hmm. everything has worked so far. And, and I'll say this as a startup, um, you know, you see, you always wonder as a startup what that black swan is going to be, what's going to come out of left field that you weren't expecting. But so far, everything has absolutely rolled our way and, and worked well for us. And we know there'll be something out there, but it, but it's gone great. I, I didn't mean to like uh, a timeline, but I mean, what's the process? I mean, I read somewhere in one of the, there's something called Mr. Spock, which is kind of the preliminary. Yeah. I mean, what's that? Tell me, tell me that yeah. story. Yeah, that, that process is, is great. So it all started with, with paper engineering, designing a system on paper, um, that we wanted to run by external third parties to make sure that that they believed this was a, a feasible and, and viable solution. From there, that eventually developed into what we call Mr. Spock, our space proof of concept. Um, and what that does is that that goes up um, and it will be the first commercially produced um, LIDAR imaging satellite um, that exists. Um, there have been some science missions that have been done by NASA and I believe the European Space Agency contributed as well um, on, on the space station and one uh, free flyer. But those are, you know, billion dollar systems are, are huge and massive and commercial feasibility isn't really in the equation there, right? And they, they image pretty small areas. Um, and so, you know, this system goes from paper engineering to Mr. Spock and then we'll build that commercial constellation um, in groups. Um, we'll send them up in batches um, over time in a, in a pretty regular cadence so that our capacity for imaging scales up and up and up. And as we bring on more, uh, more customers, that capacity will increase with it. And so the mission, number one, is for 20 satellites to image the entire land surface of the Earth once per year. But that doesn't mean we're finished at 20 satellites. Um, I can only imagine what we're going to learn between iteration of satellites from our customers and from the data about what we want to put on the next iteration. And so we'll be in this constant cycle of building business, um, building new satellites that meet customer needs with new requirements. Um, and, and I would venture to say that, that what we can achieve with the, the last group of satellites versus the first group in this um, are going to be tremendously different. Wow. Well, that is pretty cool stuff. I, th I think what well, we should put it down, we can go on for hours with this, but I think we need, probably need to stop. Uh, 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 dear listener, what, what I will do is put up some links. Uh, you can see Clint on video. There's a lot of articles. We will, we'll put those on the blog at the Mass Climate Action uh, Network.org. You should have to go in and find uh, the newsletter and you get to the blog and that'll be hot links there. Um, if you have any comments or questions about our show, send us an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net. Let us know what we should be talking about. You're probably listening to the show on your smartphone. Please ask all of your friends to listen to us on their favorite podcast distribution app because we'll be there. I want to thank our good friend DR Tucker for his continuing research support. 
And we want to close where we always close by saying that because we recognize the necessity of personal accountability for our actions, because we accept responsibility for building a durable future, because we believe it's our patriotic duty as citizens to speak out, we have to insist that the United States transform its energy sector over the next decade under a just and equitable plan that uses regulation, investments, maybe I should say good information, investments, and a price on carbon that respects environmental justice communities. So, Clint, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Really been interesting. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Ted, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Very cool. <laughs>